And look, to me, the reason that this is such a thing, a situation, (laughs) capital S, really has nothing to do with how we feel about podcasting as an industry or what Joe Rogan does. It is, I think, that people are tired of feeling judged about COVID. Mm. You know, in, in my community, I think a lot about this idea where, you know, people are saying, I just want things to be normal again. But here, things are pretty normal. Mm-hmm. You can have a really normal day here. And I think what people mean when they say, I'm just ready for things to get back to normal is I can have a pretty normal day and not feel judged about it. This is Sarah Stewart Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we try to take a different approach to the news. Today, that looks like tackling two topics that we know are going to generate a lot of feelings and discussions. First, we're going to talk about the Joe Rogan situation, capital S, at Spotify. Then we're going to get personal and talk about alcohol and the culture surrounding it here in the United States. Outside of politics, we're going to talk about some new therapy I've been getting. I'm excited about that. Before we dive in, we have a commemoration to share. We love to commemorate things here at Pantsuit Politics. And this Saturday, February 5th, is the book anniversary of our first book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Mm -hmm. A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. It's its third birthday. Wow, it's bananas. And we would love for you to leave a review on Amazon if you could. If you haven't read it, we would love for you to pick up a copy, check it out. We read the audiobook ourselves if you Mm -hmm. wanted to listen to it. It is such a blessing. Just this week, I picked up Twitter and a meteorologist from Louisville, Kentucky said that if you only read one book this year, it should be this one. It's so good. It made me so happy. Thank you, Hannah, for that cheer on Twitter. So, yes, if you want to help celebrate our book anniversary, that would be great. And up next, we're going to talk about Spotify and Joe Rogan. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
we are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Okay, in early January, this is how this all started. A coalition of medical science public health professionals. They published an open letter to Spotify calling on Spotify to immediately establish a clear and public policy to moderate misinformation on its platform. And they specifically cited one interview Joe Rogan did with a doctor, using that term a little loosely, and several other incidences of what they, you know, pointed out as misinformation surrounding the vaccines and and treatment surrounding COVID. So it was a very COVID-specific list of issues they had with Joe Rogan. Important to note, though, they did not call for Joe Rogan to be removed from the platform. They just wanted Spotify to have a clear and public policy about what they were going to do to moderate what they described as misinformation coming from the Joe Rogan podcast. Okay, then Neil Young, classic rock legend, published a letter on his website demanding Spotify remove Joe Rogan from the platform. He basically said they can have Rogan or Young, not both. Now, the letter's since been deleted, but others followed suit behind him. So you had Joni Mitchell remove her music from Spotify along with Neil Young. Brene Brown said she would not be publishing new podcast episodes until further notice. She's since released a more detailed statement about her thinking and her conversations with Spotify. Okay, so this is all starting to break. And then you have... Ashley Carmen, who's amazing. She's like the best podcast reporter. And she broke the story that Spotify did have private guidelines. It was about five sentences in there, in there very broad, a little broad, a little vague. And so then Spotify responds. They publish public guidelines and they say they're going to start putting warning labels in front of podcast content discussing COVID-19 and linking to an information hug, much like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the places do. Then Joe Rogan comes out. He posts a 10-minute long Instagram video, sort of apologizing, accepting some responsibility, saying he's happy for the new guidelines and he's happy for the changes at Spotify. So that's where we are as of today when we're recording with the controversy surrounding Joe Rogan and Spotify. I would argue that the actual controversy goes back to when Spotify brought Joe Rogan onto their platform with a $100 million exclusive deal. But that's the, the basic facts. But that leaves a lot of questions. Yeah, it's hard to know how to even put some scaffolding around this conversation because you have industry feelings about it, right? Mm -hmm. I am not at all resentful of the money that Joe Rogan makes because he has a huge audience. He's been doing this a very long time. People like what they like and people get paid when other folks like what they do. Mm -hmm. I 
did not like when Spotify started doing all of these exclusive deals because I think that's not good for podcasting. I think Mm -hmm. it hurts the industry. And it's hard for me to look at this situation without bringing that lens to it. I also think this discussion around Joe Rogan is like people are grafting on whatever their pet issues are to it. Are we really talking about COVID? Are we really talking about something under this amorphous umbrella as can- of cancel culture and free speech? It's not really any of those things, right? I think Joe Rogan here is kind of a stand-in for what are the rules around COVID now? And how are we all feeling about everything having to do with COVID? And where do we go from here when we've had a couple of years of just constricting around this topic and our judgment of each other. Yeah, I mean, I think there's three things to talk about. I think there's Spotify, which absolutely knew who Joe Rogan was when they signed him to an exclusive deal. That's why they paid so much money for it. You know, he gets about 11 million listeners an episode. The average age is 24, and the average listener is male. So they knew what they were getting. And so I think it is problematic that knowing his history, knowing the type of conversations he's hosted, that they had no public policy and no real like plan in place to deal with what anybody could probably predict was an inevitable controversy or conflict surrounding him or his guests. Like when I actually read this like five sentences of what they had ready to go in a hundred million dollar deal, I thought, "Ooh, that was lazy. Y'all were not ready for this. And that's just ridiculous. How could you not be? I mean, he's he's been in the game a long time. There are hours and hours and hours in like one month, much less several years of his career, where you could have listened to Joe Rogan and say like, oh, okay, well, now we're not distributing Joe Rogan. We're publishing exclusively Joe Rogan. So what problems could we foresee here? So, you know, as far as Spotify, I don't feel sorry for them. I think they should have seen this coming. I think they should have been better prepared. I still don't think this policy is great, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think you're right. I think that wrapped up in this, especially for us as podcasters, is the conversation about like whether publishing podcasts exclusive on platforms is good for the industry. And I agree with you. I don't think it is. So I think that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is, you know, Rogan, I've really tried to give a lot of grace. I've really tried to think about this. I'm think, you know, Joe Rogan has built a lot of trust with his audience. I think that's, you know, how or how you feel about him. There are clearly millions and millions of people who trust him and who feel respected. Like, what is the average 24-year-old male getting from listening to the Joe Rogan podcast? And I I have to believe it's in a certain amount of, like, they feel respected inside the conversation. And that's a very important currency in our world. That's what we try to give to our listeners. We want them to trust us, and we want them to feel respected in the conversation. Now, I think sort of if you scratch under the surface with him— There is these issues of speech. And I think with COVID in particular, there is a lot of speech out there that many of us don't like, you know, that many of us feel is misinformation, that we feel is dangerous, that we feel is problematic, that we feel perpetuates, you know, false ideas about the vaccine, false ideas about the the virus itself. And that's all true. And the hard reality is it's still perfectly legal. And there's really no sort of citizen solution, right? Because unless we're going to amend the Constitution, saying whatever you want, <laughs> for the most part, is legal. Uh, the government can't limit it anyway. And so we're left with this, like, really unsatisfying consumer solution. 
where we think this, and I think there's a good case. I mean, we've had this conversation recently. Like, if we're going to let people say what they want, we have to understand, like we had this conversation around January 6th, that some people are going to take it and it's going to be really dangerous. Most of the millions and millions of Joe Rogan's listeners listen to whatever they say, they sort it out, they move on, they're reasonable humans. A small percentage, I think, probably get, when he was on YouTube, get recommended another video and another video, and it is a pathway into more radical ideas. You know, I think that happens across a lot of platforms. Now, he's not on those anymore, so you could probably make the the case that, like, the best, most promising thing that happened as far as Joe Rogan's impact is pulling him off all these platforms and putting him in one place where there's not an algorithm pushing people in more extreme directions. But I just don't know if we found a—we don't have a good solution to that because there can't really be a government solution. And so I think we're just really stuck and unsatisfied with the reality that on the Internet in particular and some of these social media platforms and on places like Spotify, there will be a home for what a lot of us feel is very damaging speech. I guess that I don't feel dissatisfied around that as our condition because every other possibility I can think of is worse. Yeah. And... But that could still be unsatisfying, right? (laughs) (laughs) I listened to one of the two episodes that caused a lot of controversy and that I think specifically attracted the attention of public health officials. I listened in full. It was very, very long. (laughs) I did not walk away thinking that this is misinformation or disinformation the way that I would typically use those terms. I thought it was unwise, not super helpful, had moments of insight had some questions that I do think are reasonable questions, deserving of answers, brought some issues to the surface that I think are worth talking about more, and also had a lot of nonsense in it. And that's going to happen. I mean, if you and I talked for four hours and shared the whole thing with everyone, there'd be mm-hmm. moments when people are like, what, what is happening here? I mean, it's just that's a lot of conversation to keep focused on and to, to do tightly enough to put in front of 11 million people. But I, but I know that that's part of the appeal. I know that not everyone on our team felt this way. (laughs) I sort of liked the video that he did on Instagram because it wasn't really an apology because he's not really sorry. And I think that's fine. I think he's going to keep doing exactly what he does. I think it was some public relations cleanup that he felt like he had to do. But I do think part of what works for him is that he just he is who he is. He's very clear about it. And to me, the best thing that that can happen in this circumstance is more speech. If you don't like what you heard on that Joe Rogan podcast, put more speech out there and meet the challenge. I do think that it ultimately feeds the sensibility of people who feel that everything's being hidden and that mm-hmm. there are secret agendas at work for us to have any kind of deplatforming conversation. Not that that's really where this started. That's just where everybody's brains go, right? We go to what we're most concerned about. You know, I don't I think Joe Rogan is is who he is and he's going to keep doing his thing and that's fine because there are plenty of other places to add speech and to answer those questions and to just keep moving forward. It is really hard for me to get very reactive about Joe Rogan because I don't think that the vast majority of people who listen to him are walking away thinking, oh, he is 100% right about everything. There's not even a consistent message within the episodes. Mm -hmm. It meanders all over the place. Well, that's a thing. Two things. One, the reason the consumer solution is so unsatisfying is part of, like, in trying to 
find a solution, you're often making the problem worse. Because the truth is, when Joe Rogan went to Spotify, like the team at Verb did a really good sort of like study off the social media follows that result from his guest. And like people that come on his show since he's been on Spotify get fewer Twitter followers than even the same people would have picked up when he was across all the platforms. Fewer people are listening to Joe Rogan since he's been on Spotify. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty foregone conclusion. But now, how many people are going to go listen to Joe Rogan because of this controversy? Like, that's why that consumer solution is so dissatisfying, because the second you bring attention to the problem, you are also going to bring attention to the problem, right? And more and more of those eyes and clicks that really fuel that sort of the um, currency and sort inside of a capitalistic model, right? And I think that's what's so that's part of what's so unsatisfying about it. I mean, the second thing for me and Joe Rogan is like, look, do I resent the money he makes? I mean, I think Joe Rogan is talented. I think he's been at it a long time, but he is sloppy, and that's what I resent. There was a conversation on our podcast gathering place on Facebook and said, "What's the difference between Oprah and Joe Rogan?" Okay, look, I have to really examine myself. Because we all know how I feel about Oprah. But you know what Oprah's not? Sloppy. You think Oprah would have thrown up three hours of an unedited conversation? Please. Like, I think that that, to me, is like the difference. I think she had people on her show that then espoused fringe beliefs. No doubt about it. But it's like, it just feels so different than inviting them on to espouse their fringe beliefs, right? Like to, to like one part of pe- somebody's work to have them on a highly edited talk show. And then even though it is a very public and very powerful platform, no doubt about it, I'm not arguing that. I am not arguing that Oprah over the course of her 20 years on television and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of programming gave platform to people who didn't deserve it. She had Bill Cosby on a lot. So no argument there. But like... What bothers me about him is not necessarily that he, like, doesn't respect the power of his platform and that who he gives his platform to. It's just that he's just sloppy. He's just, like, there are times, you know, even you can tell in the conversation, like, he knows what's being said is kind of bananas, but the red flags aren't red flags to him. They're, like, extra clickbait. Great. You know, like, it's going to fuel this sort of idea about his show that he's a questioner, that he's, anti, you know, sort of libertarian, anti-authority. And so, like, that, that to me is, like, I think he knows what he's doing. I think he doesn't care that it's sloppy because it sort of, like, feeds his brand. And that's what bothers me about it. I think where that doesn't land with me is that it's sloppy compared to Oprah, but he's not trying to do the same thing she's trying to do. That The whole point is, come hang out with me and let's kick some ideas around. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to give you something highly produced. Like, it's it's just a different animal. And part of what I love about podcasting is that you can have a different animal. I think that's really great. I think my frustration in this conversation partly centers on the the whole idea of platforming. Like I'm every time I read somebody write about now, like you you have this platform and needs you need to do this with it. I think, why? Like it, why? I think that Maybe what I love about podcasting could be succinctly summarized as we get to decide what we do with the platform. We get to decide when the ad break goes in. We get to decide how long it's going to be. We get to decide what it's about. We get to decide if we're sharing this piece or that piece or not. And so it's a really beautiful creative project. And I think that 
I don't want to go down the sort of cancel culture road, but when I get frustrated in conversation, especially around COVID-19, I think part of my frustration is people should be able to define what looks like doing work that has integrity for themselves. That's my libertarian place, I guess. What do you think looks like doing your work with integrity? And I think what Joe Rogan is telling us in his 10-minute Instagram apology is like he thinks he's doing work that has integrity. And in a society where we are all free to say what we want, the answer to that to me is lots of other people doing their work with integrity and people sorting out what they sort out from that. I mean, I think that that would be true if we were talking about Joe Rogan in like 2009, right? Like when he is like first in the game and podcasting is young and scrappy and but like this not that's not where you are when you sign in a hundred million dollar exclusive deal with Spotify. Like he's not podcasting. He's like the king of podcasts, right? And to me, like, it's not necessarily that I think he has responsibility with his platform. I just want him to acknowledge it's a different beast now. And like you and I've done that, like based on where we started with our podcast, we shifted because more people listen, not because we are trying to, you know, satisfy them. We started as a bipartisan podcast. We're not anymore. Lots of people don't like that. But because that's what it means to work with integrity is to adapt and shift based on the realities of your work and your platform and who's listening. And I don't and the thing is, like, he's done that. That's why he signed a hundred million dollars a deal with Spotify. Like he acknowledges things are different and he's making money. And like, so just it's not really you're not kicking it with your friends anymore. You know, like I get what you're selling and I get how some of this feeds that brand. I just think it's dishonest. You know, like I just think that there's some inherent dishonesty there. Like when you're signing a hundred million dollar deal but you're also supposed to be like Mr. Libertarian. There's just a part of me that's going to roll my eyes for better for I don't want to deplatform you. Like that's not I don't I'm just critiquing. I really have no action in mind more than just I will continue to roll my eyes. So what would what would that adjustment look like where he stays authentic to himself and consistent with his brand but you don't have that criticism of that you haven't adjusted to being the king of podcasting. Well, what I would tell him is like, your brand is not static. The brand that made you famous, like you're a different person than when you started. Just be true to that. You're more of a professional. Like, and if you're not, you should be, you know, like you should get an editor, Joe Rogan. Like, and I don't believe that you don't have one either for what it's worth. Like, you know, I just, that to me is like, I'm not looking for a, a 180 degree move right I like I'm just saying like acknowledge that things are different and like you're not the dude in the dorm room anymore and that's okay like you can shift and change and let your audience shift along with you like how old is Joe Rogan why is his listener still 24 like these are questions worth asking you know what I mean what do you think about the misinformation label as it pertains to to COVID-19 where do you think the lines should sit or by whom should they be drawn or how should we think about them that's the part of this that I find myself really kind of getting spun up over Joe Rogan is 54 by the way I just looked it up so twice the age of his listener worth that seems like an important information point um I think that misinformation when we use misinformation it's that problem of like we think there is speech that's damaging and we want a government solution, but there can't be one because we have free speech. And we're just stuck in this cycle of like, we're not wrong. It is damaging. There were people that started on spot, like started listening to Joe Rogan and got radicalized. I have no doubt in my head, mind. No doubt. And so like that is hard and that is damaging. But I don't know. Like, I think we use the term misinformation 
because what we're really trying to say is like some speech is damaging. And I just don't know if we're happy with the solution. I think younger people in particular, like there's sort of arguably like an illiberal bent that like, well, if it's harmful, we should make it illegal. You know, I think like that's the undercurrent of this conversation under canceling and misinformation and public health. And there's this sort of like undercurrent of like, well, if it's harmful, should we make it illegal? You know, like, but we can't right now we can't for sure. And so then what does that mean? Well, I feel like the next iteration of I don't like it, therefore it should be illegal, but it can't be becomes, therefore the market should fully reject it. Yeah. And that's not working either. (laughs) We have people who become very reactive to that idea, too. Because you fuel the market when you take that stance for better or for worse or a certain aspect of the market. Right. The second you stand up and say the market should reject it, there are people be like, "Ooh, I know. Listen. And look, to me, the reason that this is such a thing, a situation, (laughs) capital S, really has nothing to do with how we feel about podcasting as an industry or what Joe Rogan does. It is, I think, that people are tired of feeling judged about COVID. Mm. You know, in, in my community, I think a lot about this idea where, you know, people are saying, I just want things to be normal again. But here, things are pretty normal. If you don't interact with the healthcare system routinely or the education system routinely, you can have a very pre COVID normal experience of the world here. You can go to a restaurant, you can go wherever you want. You definitely will not be the only person who is unmasked. You can go to a sporting event. The whole world saw us celebrating the Cincinnati's entrance to the Super Bowl. I mean, like, you can have a really normal day here. And I think what people mean when they say, I'm just ready for things to get back to normal is I can have a pretty normal day and not feel judged about it. I can have a pretty normal day and post my pictures of it and not have anybody roll into my comments asking about everybody being vaccinated or not, right? People are just tired of being judged. And that's why I think this discussion about Joe Rogan has picked up so much steam, because if you wade through the three plus hours, you hear some fair uh, questions and critiques, some moments where he'll say to his guest, like the guest, if the guest is saying, well, I think the vaccine could cause this, he'll, Joe, Joe will say, well, to be fair, COVID causes that too. Like you hear a discussion that doesn't sound like misinformation if you wade through the whole thing, but there are pieces in isolation that definitely do. And I don't know what the average Joe, Joe Rogan listener walks away thinking after all that. Maggie used the word dizzying. I found it to be so also. It is quite a journey <laughs> to hang in for that long. And, and I, but I just feel like the only reason anybody really cares about that is because in our personal lives, we are experiencing, no matter where we are, if we're a person who's still isolating or if we're a person who's living our best life, not thinking about COVID or anywhere in between, I do think we all have this like hovering sense of other people judging my choices right now that we want to be unburdened from. See, I don't I I think I disagree with that because I don't think it's the judgment. I think it's the reality that I don't really even I mean, my town is not we both live in Kentucky. We both can go to restaurants and move around the world, but it's still not the same. Like it's normal on paper, but it's not normal. And like also who moves like I know what you mean, like if you're not a teacher or a nurse, but the truth is like. Most of us interact with enough of the 
world, either through the healthcare system or the school system or a daycare system or like a grocery store where things are not normal or a vacation that keeps getting canceled or a concert you want to go to that keeps getting moved or a conference you were supposed to go to in a big city that that they're going to require. You know, like, I don't know how many people really do move around normally, like who are untouched because everything is different and it's going to stay that way. And I don't know if people are mad about being judged about that because I don't I don't hear as many of those comments as I used to. Like, I think that everybody's like it's kind of shifted. It's more just like people are mad. They're mad that everything's different. And I think the reality that it's going to stay different. And so if you listen to Joe Rogan and you've taken COVID really seriously, you're mad because he's not taking it seriously. And your perspective, like like you've made these sacrifices and you're acknowledging that everything's different and you've adjusted accordingly and you're furious that he refuses to acknowledge that or allows guests on who refuse to acknowledge that. And if you're on the other side where you still feel the judgment and you still feel that things are different, like you're mad that they're mad. Like it's just this awful cycle where everybody where I feel like all we really need to look at each other is and say everything's different and it's going to stay different. And that's hard. Yeah, I don't really disagree with anything that you said there, except that I do think there is a layer of I think in that anger that everybody has, there is a lot of judgment wrapped up in that of being felt judged and of judging other people and that that's how our anger is working itself out. I feel like in a place of real acceptance about COVID, probably the most acceptance I have felt throughout the whole pandemic, maybe it's just practice. (laughs) I'm I'm getting better at it. I really don't feel mad at anybody right now. I really feel a sense. I, I even after listening to all of this with with Rogan and his guest, who I did think said some very bananas things. We don't know how to deal with this. We are not equipped. And all of our life experiences are contributing to what we've done so far and how we perceive it and what we're afraid of and what we're motivated by. And I just don't have it in me to be mad at anybody about it. And I also because the virus has shifted so many times, the actual virus, right? Because we are dealing with another life force. I struggle with using misinformation in such a definitive way because so much of what we say about this depends on what we know and when and what what, what time was this issued, you know? I just don't feel as reactive to this as a lot of what I'm seeing, even from people that I usually agree with on on these types of issues. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm reactive, but it's really not as much about what he says. It's it's more about, like, how he operates and that that's been pretty consistent and that Spotify could not anticipate that this was going to be a problem. I just think that is real silly. But as far as, like, I think the conversation around misinformation is just hard. And instead of saying, like, this is hard and we don't have any easy solutions, it's easier to say, you're wrong and you're hurting people. I'm currently very, very deep right now in conflict is not abused by Sarah Schultz. And it is speaking to me on all kinds of levels that I can't get into right now. Or uh, this podcast is going to be long, as long as a Joe Rogan podcast before <laughs> long. So we're going we're to wrap up this conversation and move on to talking about alcohol in the United States. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Dry January is over. It's been increasingly popular in recent years, although, Beth, I did learn this fun fact. The Finnish government launched a sober January campaign in 1942 as a part of the war effort. So been around a while. But this did feel like the right time to have a conversation that we've been meaning to have for a long time about alcohol, uh, particularly this culture surrounding women and alcohol in the United States and how the pandemic has shifted that. 
I always want to talk to you about alcohol after I have a conversation with my friend Eric, who's been on the podcast before. Eric is very serious about his Second Amendment rights, and I learn a lot in discussion with him through some very serious disagreement that we have about what the Second Amendment means. But in all of those discussions, as we're talking very much aligned with the COVID conversation, as we're talking about risk and what acceptable risk looks like and what risk gets managed from a public policy perspective or not, he often will say, what about alcohol? You're mm-hmm. telling me guns are this dangerous. Alcohol is really dangerous. Where is the public policy discussion around how dangerous alcohol is? And okay. and I, my only response is like, you're right. I don't, you know, you're you're right. It's It's dangerous in a different way than guns. I don't think they're the same. But yeah, I think we need to have a broader public policy conversation about alcohol. Absolutely. And I think the pandemic in so many ways has really, you know, accelerated that conversation. So the American Psychological Association, about one year into the pandemic, put out a study that one in four adults reported drinking more to manage stress during the pandemic. And if an adult had children between the ages of five to seven, that number doubled. I read an interview with Dr. Sarah Wakeman, who's the medical director of the Substance Abuse Disorder Initiative at Massachusetts General Hospital. And she said there's actually been a 41 percent increase and heavy drinking days among women, among a 41% increase in heavy drinking days among women. And look, the truth is, it was bad before the pandemic. From 1999 to 2017, the number of alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. doubled to more than 70,000 a year, making alcohol one of the leading drivers of the decline in American life expectancy. You also saw a huge 65% increase in cirrhosis deaths from 1999 to 2016, And there's been a 10.5% annual increase in the average cirrhosis-related mortality rates among people 25 to 34. So we see this in particular, again, among women. We started this conversation on Instagram by sharing a reel from an account at Therapy for Women that I find very insightful on issues surrounding alcohol. And uh, she had put together a reel that just showed women in pop culture (laughs) Very recognizable women in pop culture, all with, you know, very prevalent alcohol in their hands. And as I was watching that reel, I thought about how we are the just say no dare generation, right? Like I heard so much about drugs all through school. I really did not hear a lot of conversations about alcohol. Mm -hmm. I heard about alcohol at church, but not in any kind of public health programming. I heard don't drink and drive, but that was really it. And when I look at these numbers, it feels to me connected to a larger issue of bodily awareness, how we really aren't taught to assess what we feel inside our bodies and what it means. And that leaves us really powerless in the face of anything that can be addictive. Uh, It also makes us not so good at feeling our feelings and lots of other things that I think are bad for us. But I don't want this conversation to sound like alcohol is the worst. No one should drink ever. Uh, That would be super hypocritical. I enjoy a glass of wine now and then. But what I've realized is I enjoy a glass of wine now and then now because I really understand what's going on in my body. And I know if I drink this by itself, I'll have a headache. I'll feel terrible. If I have three glasses, I'm going to start to feel really bad pretty immediately. It's not going to be worth it. And there was never, I guess it's like sex, it was just easier to say don't do it than to talk about, yes, and here are the constraints. 
yes and here are the things you need to be thinking about as you as you wade into this territory. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I was growing up, my parents didn't drink. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. My grandmother doesn't drink and is is pretty, you know, hardcore about telling people they shouldn't drink either because she had an alcoholic father and an alcoholic brother. I used to kind of think she was too hardcore about it. And now I don't know. I think she might be on something because it does feel like, you know, what's been normalized is not, you know, drinking as enjoyment, but it's drinking as coping, particularly for women. The cultural message is loud and clear. You know, the mommy wine culture, the just meme after meme after meme after meme. And it does feel like a little bit the pandemic broke the spell on that. Like, I don't feel like it's as accepted as it was, like sort of that language surrounding like, this is how mommy gets by, you know, coffee, wine, repeat. Because there was just more cultural acceptance of route. Like, you know, the, the you know, the reason women have to drink to cope is because being a woman is really freaking hard right now, especially like a woman in the pandemic, especially if you had children to care for with the like basic collapse of daycare and public school. Like it's really, really hard and stressful and the pressure can be unbearable. And, you know, I think that there's more recognition of like presenting alcohol as the solution to this systemic problem is oppressive, right? In my life, you know, like because I didn't grow up around people who drank and who were like always the life of the party. I have not struggled with alcohol, but my husband has. And we, you know, had lots and lots of conversation. And I will never forget one time a therapist telling us there is no healthy level of drinking. Let's say that again. There is no, I will never forget a therapist on this one time because there was like this big global study and I looked it up in preparation of the show. It was like in 2018, it was like a meta-analysis, 195 countries looking at drinking patterns from 1990 to 2016. And the conclusion was basically like, there is no safe level of drinking. There is no, like they can't tell you, this is how many drinks you should have in a week and it's safe because there really isn't a safe level of drinking. And because I'm an Enneagram one, it bothers me not at all to say that. Like, it doesn't mean that I think people who drink are bad people or there's any morality. But I just think, like, the sort of basic chemistry of alcohol is sort of hard to, like, hard to ignore. Now, I do think that the—I will say this. I think the big piece in the the Atlantic, like, I think it was like a year or so ago, did such a good job of kind of piecing all this apart. It was Kate Julian's piece, America Has a Drinking Problem, where she talked about, like— Why the physiology of alcohol is sort of hard to argue with, like what it does to our body and why it disrupts our sleep and why it can make your anxiety work. There's a new hashtag now called anxiety, which I learned all about while researching this show. That there is like her thing was like, well, if all that's true, why do we still drink? (laughs) Why do we drink for hundreds and hundreds of years? And it was like a really interesting exploration. And she talks about like it can lower social inhibitions in a way that is helpful for us as social creatures, right? Like it helps our it helps us like be together in groups. It can fuel creativity. Like that's clear. Like there were there were and are positive benefits socially to drinking. And like, but the problem is in America in particular, we started drinking by ourselves. We moved from beer to liquor, which has way higher alcohol content. And so I thought she did a really good job of sort of like piecing that apart. And I do try to think about that. But I think like you know, just the the physiology for me is just, especially my own life is hard to not. I, ca- I cannot drink. Really, I can't. I do sometimes, 
in social settings. And I don't even really know why, because I know like it's going to probably hurt my stomach. It's going to disrupt my sleep. It's going to make me cranky. And I think it is. It's just because it's that like social culture that has built around alcohol that is so powerful. Like in those in those images in the reel, it's like that's what like stylish women do. They have a big glass of wine. And that's what it's not just like alcohol is coping with stress. It's also like alcohol is status because the alcohol. I mean, there's a huge multi-billion dollar industry that's taught us like this substance is status. And I think that's like just a huge component of it as well. As I was thinking about this episode, you know, alcohol is another thing that's difficult to talk about because it feels like it is such it's a topic that is so much about our individual choices Mm -hmm. instead of existing in a context. And the context of talking about alcohol, when you really think about it, is so challenging because you have people listening who are going to feel attacked if they enjoy drinking. Mm -hmm. You have people listening who struggle to be around alcohol who find it very anxiety-inducing. You have people listening who have been traumatized because of alcohol, who've lost loved ones because of alcohol. It is just such a charged topic. And when I talk about trying to address it through public policy, I don't mean a return to prohibition. I, I think we regulate alcohol just fine. What I think we don't do is educate about alcohol well. Mm-hmm. And when you marry up not educating out about alcohol well with those cultural status symbols, with, you know, very lucrative industry pressures with a culture where we don't have a lot of real support. So we wrap ourselves up in a lot of fake support and and have made alcohol the, the default fake support that we offer. That leaves us all very vulnerable to the terrible outcomes that we see. And I just want to like surface it more in conversation to say that that is a public health issue, too. Mm. And seeing some of the tools that we have around public health through the pandemic makes me realize we can be sharpening and compounding those tools more often around around broader subjects. So I think it would build trust in public health to have it front and center when we're not in a crisis in ways that are more productive than maybe it has been in the past. And and alcohol seems like a really good opportunity to me. Well, and I think people are doing that work. Like, I think the sober curious movement is incredibly powerful. I think the like helping people moderate support and the mindful drinking, because I don't, I do think there is a false binary of like, either you don't drink or you're an alcoholic. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will never forget as long as I live an episode of Oprah about, it was early, early in the game. And Oprah did an episode on like women and drinking. And this woman said, if you have to create rules around when and how you drink, you maybe have a problem. Like people who manage alcohol successfully don't have rules for themselves. And I thought, oh, that's really, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of things, not just alcohol, for what it's worth. And I thought, and so I think like helping people, so I think there's room, right, for the people who can manage it to like fight back against those societal pressures that say it is status, that it is a way to cope with anxiety and stress, that you need to do it every day. Like just the, the a lot, giving people the like, tools and allowing them to do it mindfully or think about their drinking. I think that's why Dread January is so popular um, is because it gives people a pause to think, wait, what is this doing to me? Because it is hard to look because it is an addictive substance. It is hard to to bring that mindfulness 
just like of your own individual like willpower. I think willpower is kind of a myth anyway. So like that's just hard. Like giving people the tools to do that and like the support, the social support, because it is also like such a social lubricant. So you need, I think, the social support to examine it in other ways as well. I think that's really powerful. And I think the pandemic has accelerated that as well. I think the pandemic has definitely accelerated. I told a friend the other day, I was like, I feel like, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, it was like either people's drinking got way worse or they stopped drinking altogether. And there's like not a lot of in between as I look around at my friends. Now, that might be my age. Um, But I do think that the conversation around alcohol, I think, has gotten more nuanced and more complex in really positive ways. And I think some of the reason we saw that in the pandemic is because for parts of the population, for parts of this huge category of time that we refer to as the pandemic now, there was more time to think about the effect things had on you. You know, there there was more quiet. Mm-hmm. Work started to occupy a different space for many of us. And it was a chance to step back and think through these things. This is my big beef. It is really hard to ask people to observe themselves and their reaction to something. How addictive is it for you? Uh, what is your tolerance level? What feels good and life-giving as a social lubricant versus very depressing. If that's your first foray into observing yourself, and the right. effect something has on you. And I just want to really start building more skills earlier. And I think that there are social emotional learning programs that are trying to do this for students in school. There's There are a lot of people out there doing good work trying to teach us as parents to give our kids these types of skills. For me, yoga has been transformative in helping me have some of those skills. But We need to bring a lot more vocabulary to the alcohol discussion about how we under how can you have that mindfulness around it? What does that actually look like and what's that practice? Well, because knowing that particularly women drink because it's so, so hard (laughs) to be a woman right now in America in 2022 I'm not looking to be the one that's like, yeah, well, you need to try harder on this thing. No, the, like, there's lots of try hard going on out there. Plenty of try hard. A lack of try hard is not the problem. And so, like, saying, like, oh, just try harder not to drink is definitely not going to work, not helpful, and actively harmful. Several years ago, I was listening to this podcast. I think it was a This American Life. And it was talking about parenting support. And this nurse came to this woman's house, and she was pregnant. And she was sort of at risk for all these behaviors. And I, I remember the nurse telling her, like, you really shouldn't smoke. And the woman looked at her with such, like, anger and said, this baby's taking everything from me. It's not taking my cigarettes. And it's like, I'm not trying to trigger that reaction. You know what I mean? Like, the world is hard enough. I'm not trying to say, like, don't take this one thing. that Because that's the reaction you get. That's the definite, like, that's the vibe you get when people get defense about their drinking. Is like, everything is so hard. How dare you suggest I give this up? And I just think we have to be so cognizant of that and empathetic to that it is hard like I get it you know like I get it and so I don't want to put people in a space where they're like defensive and like well you're a bad person you just need to try harder because again so much try hard out there right now I do think we can put this conversation and sort of the awareness around alcohol safely in the bucket of like increased awareness due to the pandemic like I'm not saying it's a silver lining because I also know that the pandemic increased stress and increased drinking. But I do feel that there has been a big shift 
and this conversation societally and like the understanding about it societally. And I hope that that will help a lot of people. I do. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. In the fall, Beth, my uh, friends and I went to a corn maze, and there was like this big inflatable like trampoline thing. 
Okay. And me and two of my girlfriends jumped on it. And I posted on Instagram that three of three moms peed themselves while jumping on this. And about half the response on Instagram was, oh, my God, yes. And half the inst- about half the approach was like, why? You don't need to do that. Go see a pelvic floor therapist. And I was like, well, okay, fine. I will, Instagram. So I've been going to see a pelvic floor therapist because I don't want to pee myself when I cough, sneeze, and or jump on a trampoline. Okay, tell me what a session with a pelvic floor therapist looks like. Where are you? What do you wear? Are you by yourself or with other people? How long is it? Just give me the rundown. Uh, It's just like a regular old physical therapy office. I'm in a room with the physical therapist who's lovely by myself. And so like the first one, we just talked about like kind of what my issues were and how the pelvic floor works. And she gave me some exercises to do, like sort of like, you know, the clamshell where you bring your leg up and bring it down with resistance bands. And um, but then the next one was really interesting because she put like um, biofeedback monitors so she could see like how my pelvic floor was tightening and relaxing and like when I was doing kegels and the whole situation to make sure because sometimes like the issue is not that it's weak. Sometimes the issue is that it's like over tight and not relaxing. I've learned a lot about the pelvic floor. And she gave me some more exercises to do. And she just said, like, it's really good that I'm coming in now because it's harder when you're like 50 or 60 and it's been going on for a decade for her to help you. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, they're right. I'm not going to accept this as just a part of being a 40-year-old mother, it's like there's probably something I can do to help that. And, you know, I learned a lot about that when I did the Happy Hips course. She talks a lot about the pelvic floor and how like everything gets just so thrown out of whack when you have kids. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful. I'm hopeful and excited. So what is the length of your relationship with the pelvic floor therapist? How many times are you going? I don't know. I like went the first time and then I came back the next week and then she said, OK, I'll see you in two weeks. I will. I mean, I'm not to like brag. But based on my biofeedback, she said, like, I was in a pretty real, a pretty good position. Like, I don't have huge issues. And so hopefully just like with some exercise and a little bit of feedback to make sure that I'm doing everything correctly and and hopefully it will get better. So I think a lot of times when anybody's talking about any form of therapy, physical or otherwise, there's this hesitance of like, what am I actually getting into? How long is this going to go on? How long until I'm fixed? Well, I mean, I think it just matters. Well, you know, look, like I think physical therapy of any type, you've got to like mad adjust your expectations. We should maybe abandon the word fixed. Right. I said that with a joke because we don't get fixed about anything. Right, right, right. That's what Um, we want to know. True. So, but, you know, I just thought, I think it's really important. I think especially like postpartum and like the happy hips woman says like postpartum is forever when your child is 21 you are still postpartum um, <laughs> and that uh so i just i think i love more information i think it is really important and important to the quality to, important to women's quality of life and so i just want to thank all our listeners who rolled into my dms and was like girl you need to put yourself on a trampoline go to a pelvic floor therapist yeah i have to give another shout out to yoga here because i really developed an understanding of the pelvic floor through yoga mm-hmm. i specifically focused on it around my pregnancy in ways that were really supportive and helpful to me. So I really haven't had a lot of issues. And now that I'm kind of, I'm, I'm dipping my toes in jazzercise right now, I'm really enjoying it. But I have an awareness of when the pelvic floor can be engaged while I'm doing that because of yoga. Like it just taught, yoga has taught me so much about how my body operates that now I can see when I get into other spaces 
oh, like this is an opportunity to to work those muscles and to, you know, figure this out in a, in a way that has been really supportive to me. Well, we know we have covered a very wide range of things today. They will all hopefully generate good conversation amongst all of you. And one of the ways we love conversing with all of you is through emails and notes you send in. We read every single one and we often highlight our favorites in our weekly newsletter. We have no doubt that today's conversation will continue and probably lead to some listener email highlighted in the newsletter. So make sure you're head over to our website and sign up for the newsletter. You don't want to miss any of the assuredly thoughtful notes that will come for this community. And we'll be sharing those in response to today's episode. We will see you next Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky, Allie Edwards, Janice Elliott, Sarah Greenup, Julie Haller, Helen Handley, Tiffany Hassler, Emily Holliday, Katie Johnson, Katina Zuganellis-Kasling, Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, The Creeps, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Jared Minson, Emily Neasley, The Titans, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. Hang on just a second. Did you not hear me? Hi, sweetheart. Sorry, just a second. (laughs) Did you not hear me ring the doorbell three times? I did not hear the doorbell. I'm so sorry, but I knew the garage door was open and that you'd be able to get in. Is it going to heal tonight? I don't think so. All right. Can you give me just a few more minutes? Yeah. Can I watch something?